The scripture lesson this morning, Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Begin the reading in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we pray for the Holy Spirit's help now that we might understand your word more clearly and fully, that indeed he would direct us in the truth, in the truth of the gospel, in the truth of your word. May we understand the redemption we have more fully, having been taught by the apostle this day. And indeed, may it direct us to more faithful lives, to your glory and honor. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If the Apostle Paul was writing his epistles in modern times and making use of Microsoft Word to do so, then there's a good chance that his letters would be mostly filled with blue words from beginning to end because of all the hyperlinks that would be included. I would imagine most of you know that a hyperlink is a, a link within an article or paper online that takes you to another website where another article or paper can be found related to the article you're presently reading in some form or fashion. And often those hyperlinks are in bold letters of some sort. Well, that's a bit how it feels to be reading Paul's letter to the Colossians, even in just the verses that are before us today, because there are so many references to other passages of Scripture or salient points of theology. In practically every sentence, there is an allusion or direct reference that lingers in Paul's thoughts uh, as he embarks upon this letter to the church, to the saints in the small town of Colossae. And as we begin to consider the details of the text, we'll, we'll see how the manner in which Paul begins the letter factors into his overall purpose in seeking to cultivate and encourage these believers in their spiritual maturity. Admittedly, getting at the structure of the text can be a bit challenging. A case can be made for verses 1 through 8 standing on their own, and the ver verses 9 to 23 constituting the next section. 
We also can see verses 3 through 8 as comprising Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. And verses 9 to 14 as a prayer for fullness of the kingdom. And then verses 15 to 18 as a hymn of praise. Regardless, Paul's teaching is marvelous. And in verses 3 to 14, it seems, it seems fairly safe to conclude that he's primarily occupied with prayer. Verse 3 begins, We give thanks, always praying for you. The, the New King James here is better than the ESV, which places the always with the giving thanks. But the always referring to the praying seems to be the better reading. Then what do we read in verse 9? We do not cease praying for you. So, so prayer is foundational to this opening section of the letter. And Paul's pattern in prayer reveals not only glorious truths about God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what they've accomplished, but also carries with it practical import of that truth for the life of the church. Again, Paul begins with thanksgiving. He begins with gratitude to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He just mentioned the Christ and the Father in the salutation of verses 1 and 2, and now mentions them first, starting with the Father. And to state the obvious, notice the connection he makes with the Colossian believers, our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Timothy, Epaphras, and these believers all have the same Lord, and it's Jesus the Messiah. Paul is already establishing the Colossians' identity in Christ. And what are Paul and those who are ministering with him doing? Praying, praying always. Now, this doesn't mean that all they do is pray 24-7. Rather, it's a way of indicating that they're in the habit of praying for the church in Colossae. And Paul prays, which could very well be three times a day, according to the Old Testament pattern, as mentioned last week then part of his time in prayer is spent praying for these Christians. And that immediately should be a source of great encouragement for this young church. Here is the Apostle Paul, whom they've not met in person, yet he and those with him are praying for them. They might not be the church in Rome or Ephesus. They might not be a church in a major city, but it's the Apostle's habit to be praying for these saints. And in verses 4 and 5, Paul gives more of the substance of that thanksgiving, of why they're so thankful to the Lord. And it's on account of the reputation that the Colossians have, particularly in relation to the Christian virtues of faith, love, and hope. You may be familiar with Paul's mentioning of these virtues elsewhere, such as in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, where the order is faith, hope, and love. But here, as in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 and 5, 8, the order of the virtues is faith, love, and and hope. What is faith? Well, it can be defined as the confidence in a person, acceptance of what he said, and trust in him in the future. It is belief and resting in what God has said. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. But there can also be an element of covenant loyalty because their faith is in Christ Jesus. Their faith is in union with Christ. Their covenant loyalty is guaranteed by Christ's covenant loyalty. Paul has heard that these believers are faithful and loyal to Christ Jesus. And as we see throughout this entire prayer of thanksgiving, there's implicit encouragement in what Paul is saying because he's telling them, you're in Christ, which is, which, well, the reality that means quite a lot. So what else has Paul heard about them? the love that they have for all the saints. These saints love the other saints. What's love? Well, simply put, it's looking out for others. It's sacrificial. It follows Jesus' pattern of washing feet and laying down one's life for one's friends. 
The Colossians have this quality of love. And then Paul also mentions the hope laid up for them in heaven. We often think of hope primarily as an attitude. Uh, One definition of hope is to long for with expectation of obtainment. And that's helpful. But that may not be what Paul is really getting at here. In fact, we could possibly, quite possibly, capitalize the word hope as a way of referring to Jesus. After all, he's the one stored away in heaven. But still, there's something significant about the location of this hope being in heaven. If it's there, it can't be attacked. It can't be taken away or stolen as things can in this world. See, for as much as we rightly uh, seek to rightly apply an incarnational theology, recognizing the goodness of creation and the world that God has made, we also have to have the right sense of otherworldliness. And when we know this hope, this treasure is in heaven, and our faith lives according to this reality, then our hope is unassailable. What does Jesus tell us to seek first? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. And when we do that, what will He add to us? All these things. And yes, there's a sense in which that otherworldly kingdom is invading this world. But also having the understanding that our hope is absolutely secure bolsters the life of faith, which means that we can all the more diligently pursue the life of love to which we're called. Well, in the next part of the verse, Paul mentions that they'd heard the word of truth, the gospel. And how did they hear it? Well, from Epaphras, the beloved fellow servant and faithful minister mentioned in verse 7. But notice Paul's phrasing, the word of truth of the gospel. There's no doubt in Paul's mind that the gospel is true. And his insistence on this point is significant in the context of his day, even as it is in ours. When we stop and think about it, the secular religious context between Paul's day and ours have quite a number of striking similarities, religious pluralism being chief among them. Just as it would have grated against popular sentiment in the ancient world that someone had a corner on the truth, that there was exclusivity when it came to the truth, so that's one of the challenges we face in our day as well. And we need to be clear that the biblical Christian vision of truth that the gospel itself is a declaration of the truth, is a call to be obedient to the reality of the truth as defined by the God who made the world and the Savior who came to save it. As one New Testament uh, scholar writes, the gospel is not primarily either an invitation or a technique for changing people's lives. It is a command to be obeyed and a power let loose in the world which cannot be reduced to terms of the persuasiveness or even the conviction of the messenger. It works of itself to overthrow falsehood. And it's this very gospel of truth that has come to the Colossians and even to the whole world. It's not a message for just one nation. And what is it doing? It's bearing fruit or bringing forth fruit. It's a prosperous vine or tree. But even more, it's bringing about a new application of the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, a point Paul returns to in the next section. The gospel is having that kind of success. It's growing. And Paul goes on to say that this has been the reality and experience for the Colossian church since the day they heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Again, from whom did they learn the truth? Who preached the gospel to them? Well, Epaphras, whom we find out later was from Colossae. 
So God uses means to spread the gospel, particularly people, and even more particularly men who preach the word. As Paul wrote to the Romans, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Paphras performed this function, fulfilled this duty in his hometown, and now there's a church of the Lord Jesus Christ there receiving this letter from the Apostle Paul. And what kind of report has Epaphras delivered to Paul about these believers? Well, he's made clear, he's shown and indicated their love in the Spirit. Paul mentioned their love for the saints back in verse 4, and now he comes back to the virtue of love in verse 8 with the qualifying prepositional phrase, in the Spirit. And has Paul and as Paul has made mention of the three Christian virtues, faith, love, and hope, also notice the Trinitarian shape of his prayer of thanksgiving in verses 4 through 8 with the explicit mention of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that we should necessarily try to equate a single virtue with each person of the Trinity. That doesn't seem to be Paul's point. But hopefully it should cause us to appreciate the manner in which Paul is writing that is hardly haphazard and that there's this underlying beauty and even how the text itself is written. You know, it's maybe it's one of those things that maybe you don't notice at first, but it adds an aesthetic to it that's not only enriching from a literary perspective, but a theological one as well. As this prayer of thanksgiving, prayer of thanksgiving takes on a Trinitarian form. Now let's pause for a moment and step back and consider kind of these verses as a whole again and make an observation about Paul's pattern here. He begins with thanksgiving. He begins in praise of what God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done in the life of these believers. He regards them as saints and is laying the theological foundation for everything else he's going to cover over the course of the remainder of the letter. And it's no small detail that Paul begins with gratitude and with their identity in Christ. He declares to them who they are, which should be a source of great encouragement to them. Even though there doesn't appear to be a major theological uh, or sin issue that Paul is addressing in this epistle, nevertheless, he's going to challenge the Colossians in his calling them to greater maturity. In a practical sense, I suppose we could say that Paul is making deposits before he makes withdrawals. But it's not that he's buttering up these believers just so he can say harder things to them. No, he's providing a pastoral paradigm, a practical pattern that is necessary for all believers, young and old and and everyone in between, to first understand who you are because of what Christ has accomplished in his death and resurrection. I can remember some 20 plus years ago when this understanding of what Paul is saying more fully hit home with me, though it was more in the context of going from uh, chapter 2 into chapter 3 of Colossians, but it was utterly transformative. The doubts, the questioning of salvation cleared away. Justification, my standing before God was even more definitive. But so was the calling to holiness, the doctrine of sanctification, that the pursuit of righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit was the natural outworking of the redemption Christ had achieved. And that's freeing, empowering, and emboldening. And Paul begins there with these believers. And he's beginning there with us as well. Consider your identity in Christ. Consider who you are in Him. You are a saint. You are set apart. You have sanctuary access. 
And you have this by virtue of your baptism. This is who you are, so be who you are. Well, that brings us to the second section of our passage this morning in verses 9 to 14. And again, how the text is structured uh, as a point of ongoing discussion. But we should readily notice that as Paul moves from thanksgiving to petition, that the basic substance of his thanksgiving now makes up the basic substance of his petition on behalf of the Colossians. Paul uses some of the same language, even as his prayer continues to take a Trinitarian shape. Verse 9, And on account of this, from the day which we heard, have not stopped on your behalf praying and asking, so that you may be filled up to the knowledge of the will of Him in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, a case can be made that spiritual should be capitalized and that Paul is directly referring to the Holy Spirit here in verse 9. But what, what does Paul mention first? Prayer. They've heard about the faith of these believers and they've regularly been in prayer for them. And we made mention of this already, but not ceasing a prayer doesn't mean that, that that's all they do, but that they regularly pray for these Christians. Again, Paul keeps regular hours of prayer, likely morning, noon, and evening. And this constant praying matches the sacrificial patterns um, that we find in the temple, the constant burning of the lampstand, and so forth. See, that's what Paul is indicating here. And what's the first thing for which he asks? That they be filled with knowledge. Knowledge about what? Just general trivia? No, knowledge about God of His will, which is encapsulated in His Word, and spiritual wisdom and understanding. Again, we should probably understand spiritual as referring to the Holy Spirit because there, well, there isn't any spiritual wisdom or understanding apart from Him anyway. Wisdom, skill in living, is arguably an Old Testament term. It's what Proverbs is all about, and understanding goes right along with it and even overlaps with knowledge. And we need to see how tightly linked these ideas are. And then in Paul's thinking, there isn't a great dichotomy between the spiritual life and intellectual understanding. No, they're closely connected and even overlapping and lead into ethics and the doing that Paul goes on to detail in verse 10. What's the purpose of the spiritual knowledge, wisdom, and understanding? To walk worthy of the Lord in all desire to please, in all good works bearing fruit and growing in the knowledge of God. The credenda, things believed, leads to agenda, the things to be done. But notice Paul's perspective. To walk worthily, the good work bearing fruit, and the growing in the knowledge are all attainable to a degree. These attributes aren't just pie in the sky for believers, but can actually be gained to some measure, even if there's a sense that they're always pursued in this life. There's no place for complacency, thinking we've arrived and can just coast along in the faith. But neither is there a place for making little of what Christ has done and called us to be. It can be challenging to strike the correct balance here, but there's nothing here in Paul's teaching that leaves room for a version of the worm theology that declares, well, I'm just barely getting by in my spiritual walk, or where I'm a woe-is-me sinner who is so vile and awful that I'm not really making any progress in my walk with the Lord that I'm never really maturing. Paul doesn't sound like that at all. And if that was the attitude he wanted these believers to have, then he'd be expressing that, but he doesn't. Now, look at the abundance that underlies Paul's petitions, filled with knowledge, fully pleasing, fruitful in every good work, increasing in knowledge. 
That's how Paul prays. And that's the life that faith is to pursue because that's the evidence of new life, of new creation, indicative of the calling Christ places on those whom he's redeemed and whom dwells the Holy Spirit. Go back to Genesis and the dominion mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Paul is using that kind of language here in the new creation inaugurated by Christ and furthered by the work of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the language of fruitful abundance can also remind us of the context of the Exodus. Israel was prosperous. The people were increasing despite the hardships imposed upon them in Egypt by Pharaoh. See, growth is a threat to those in power, especially if those in power are opposed to Christ. And so the church can expect, we can expect our fruitfulness to arouse the ire of the opposition. The context for the first century church in the Roman Empire was hardly an easy one. It would get even more difficult in the next century. But the church was equipped by Christ for these challenges. And see, then, and see how this flows into Paul's next thought in verse 11. In all strength, being strengthened according to the power of his glory, in all endurance and long-suffering with joy. Now remember, Paul's still praying for them. And he continues with the theme of fullness when he mentions all strength and all endurance and long-suffering. And what is the source of this strength? The power of His glory. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit. Call that the presence of the glory cloud in the Old Testament indicates the presence of the Holy Spirit who also appears with the Son and Father on the Mount of Transfiguration. Paul is praying for their power and strength to come from the Holy Spirit. And what do they need that power for? To endure. To suffer long. To be patient. But not in a grit your teeth putting up with the circumstance kind of manner, but with joy, with gladness. Through his prayer, Paul is teaching them the perspective their faith is to have, what a maturing faith looks like, even as that leads into verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father, the one having made us fit for the part of the lot of the saints in the light. Here we run into thanksgiving and gratitude again, don't we? And what's the reason for the thanks to the Father in this instance? That He's made us fit, that He's made us capable to have part of the inheritance. What's our part or lot? The Holy Spirit. Compare what Paul's saying here with what he writes to the Ephesians. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Spirit as guarantee of our inheritance is language that indicates that, that here's a down payment, here's the earnest money, here's the initial amount that guarantees the full sum to come in the future when all of the details are completed. The Spirit is a portion of the whole payment. In other words, part of the promised future has come to meet us in the present, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Paul says something in his second letter to the Corinthians. But also notice that this is God's doing. He initiates salvation. Which is another thing that underlies all that Paul has said thus far. And Paul tells the Colossians, he's telling us, that we have a part with the saints in the light. Which sets up what he says next and how he closes out our text this morning. Who rescued us out of the authority of the darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son, the beloved one of Him, in whom we have the deliverance, the forgiveness of sins. Now, Paul's making use of Exodus language here when he describes rescue and deliverance. To be enslaved to sin is to be in bondage, to be in prison and in darkness. 
But Jesus has rescued us. He delivered us from those chains and brought us into the light. We're no longer under the authority of darkness, but are of the multitude of the saints in light. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son, which is the kingdom of light. Christ has achieved a new exodus, and the church is the new Israel that has been set free and brought into covenant with the Savior. We are saints. That's how we're identified. We're the rescued and redeemed. We've been given a new citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. We're no longer part of the domain of darkness. And understand that Paul's referring to forgiveness of sins is not simply a a liberation from the past, but it also sets us free for the present and the future. And since we're saints, what does that mean? What did we establish that last week? That we're to be a praying people. We're those with sanctuary access. And at the heart of prayer, even the pattern for our prayer found here is thanksgiving in the thanksgiving and petitions of Paul. Note again how Paul is praying for the fullness to come to them. The knowledge, the fruitfulness, the good works, the increasing, the endurance, the patience, etc. What's the foundation for all of that? What's the soil in which that chiefly grows? Gratitude. Thanksgiving to God. And for what? Deliverance. Salvation. Remembering the great works He has done. We must never forget what Christ has done. And we must not, never let, we must not let our children forget either. This past Wednesday, as part of uh, the prayer meeting, um, when I, I read a psalm before we go to prayer, I read from Psalm 78, where Asaph writes this. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. See, thanksgiving, gratitude aids remembrance, which cultivates knowledge, and that leads to further fruitfulness in faith, love, and hope. It supports the endurance and long-suffering called for in this life, even as we receive strength and power from the Holy Spirit for productive lives in the new creation according to the words and commands of Christ. Thanksgiving is fundamental to our corporate worship, and our praises and prayers, and even at the Lord's table, the Eucharist, Thanksgiving, in which we participate as we partake of the signs of Christ's body and blood, the very tokens of redemption. And from the Thanksgiving declared here, that must also flow out into our daily lives, even as gratitude should be fundamental to our personal and family prayers. Certainly we give thanks for daily food, for the food that the Lord provides, but so should we be daily thankful for the saving grace that comes to us and the, blessing that, the blessings that are ours with 10,000 beside. And parents, adults, we, we need to be thankful in our own lives, expressing our thanks in prayer and expressing our faith in prayer in our conversations. And we must also be instructing our children in lives of gratitude. And children, whether... Older, younger, teenagers, young adults, whatever label fits. Are you thankful? Do you express your thanks to God for life and health and strength? For His saving work in your life? If you're baptized, you belong to Him. That's your identity. And are you thankful for the expression of His grace that has come to you? 
You know, many of you don't remember when you were baptized, having been baptized as infants, but that shouldn't make you any less thankful for His grace to you. You know, think about it. The infants and babies that the Israelite mothers and fathers carried through the Red Sea didn't remember the Exodus. But they were baptized, they were saved, they were delivered along with everyone else. Sometimes God's grace is displayed in delivering a man, woman, or child out of oppressive darkness and bondage such as addiction, abuse, or a host of other circumstances. But it's also every bit a testimony to God's favor with riches to you if you were baptized as a baby and have been raised in a Christian home and in the church under the benefits and blessings of the covenant. Don't despise that. Don't take it for granted. Now be thankful, be grateful, and continue to grow and increase and bear fruit according to the truth that you may be filled with all knowledge, that your wisdom and understanding in the Spirit would deepen. All believers, whatever their spiritual age, are called to grow up, to mature. And you should find great encouragement to pursue maturity because you've been delivered from sin, because you've been taken out of darkness and placed in Christ's kingdom of light, because you've been set apart as one of the saints in light. That's who you are in Him. That's your identity. So let's join Paul in this prayer and pursuit of maturity even as the faith, love, and hope that have been lavished upon us by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit comprise the life of the redeemed, the life of the free, those who are members of the kingdom of heaven here and now in this world, fully assured of the promised future. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for this word. And we thank you for Paul's encouragement to the Colossian Christians And we pray that it would come to us in great encouragement as well. Bless us by your spirit for these things. May our lives increase and mature, having heard your word this day. And may you continue to direct us in lives of continual gratitude for the great things that you have done, for the great salvation that is ours because of Christ our Savior and King, in whose name we pray. Amen.